14. Got it! Lynn Bias with 35 points, and Maryland is back on top. Bias has it here, and that's what I mean. If he gets the ball, he's going to score. 16-10 remaining here in Raleigh. Here's Bias with that looping jump shot, and Duarte, he's got to be the best baseline shooter in the world. Bias from outside, and he got it. Lynn Bias with 29. Oh, my! And he made the steal in a jam! What a play by Bias! Holy cow! Lenny Bias, who's had such a big ball game, double clutch, and he made it. Two of the finest athletes in the country, Michael Jordan and Bias, going up side by side. On June 17, 1986, Len Bias arrived at Madison Square Garden for the NBA draft as one of the most celebrated college basketball players of his era. Bias was 6 foot 8, 210 pounds, built like a freight train with breathtaking athleticism and a silky smooth jump shot to boot. He rewrote the record books during his career at the University of Maryland, where he was a two-time All-American and Conference Player of the Year. Legendary Duke coach Mike Krzyzewski said decades later that the two greatest college basketball players he ever saw in over 40 years of coaching were Michael Jordan and Len Bias. He was that good. The first team to choose a player on draft night was the Cleveland Cavaliers, who passed on Bias in favor of North Carolina center Brad Doherty, who was far less skilled, but at over seven feet tall, was viewed as more valuable. Next was the defending champion Boston Celtics, and they wasted no time landing their guy. The Boston Celtics select Len Bias of the University of Maryland. There he is, Len Bias. Hearing his name called, Bias stood from his chair and hugged his parents. As he arrived to the podium, someone handed Bias a Kelly Green Celtics cap, which he placed on his head before shaking Commissioner David Stern's hand and turning to face the cameras. For Bias, the moment was the culmination of years of hard work and a fulfillment of so much promise, not to mention his ticket to unimaginable wealth and fame. For the Celtics, it was the last piece of a super team. They were adding a generational talent to a team that had just won the championship and already boasted five future Hall of Famers, including Larry Bird in his prime. The organization and the city's fans salivated with expectation. The next morning, Bias flew with his father to Boston to negotiate an endorsement deal with Reebok for $1 million, double the average annual NBA salary at the time. He then flew home to Maryland, where he was greeted by joyous family members who celebrated their returning hero. Bias's mother, Lenise, had to work that night and wasn't there to see her son, something that has haunted her ever since. Bias left his house around 10 p.m. and drove 20 or so minutes to the Maryland campus. He first visited a girlfriend, and then at 2.30 in the morning, walked to the dorm room with two teammates, Terry Long and David Gregg. Also there was a former Maryland player named Brian Tribble, who was well known to authorities as a drug dealer for campus athletes. The four drank alcohol and snorted cocaine all night. Just after 6 a.m., Bias laid down to rest on Long's bed. A few minutes later, he opened his eyes and tried to get up. Suddenly, he began to convulse. Long would later testify he saw the danger Bias was in and shoved the handle of a pair of scissors into his mouth to stop him from biting his tongue, while Greg held Bias's feet and Tribble called 911. The three frantically tried to resuscitate Bias for four short minutes that it took responders to get to the dorm room, but even that was too long. Len Bias was gone, leaving in his wake the ruined pride of his family and his school, the devastated hope of a team and a city, and, as we shall see, one of the most culturally destructive legacies in the history of sport. Len Bias was 22 years old. I'm Jason Beckerman. I'm Derek Kaufman. This is Last Days, Len Bias.
Five days after Len Bias died, Maryland's chief medical examiner confirmed the cause of death to be cocaine intoxication, which he said, quote, interrupted the normal electrical control of his heartbeat, resulting in the sudden onset of seizures, followed by cardiac arrest. There were no signs that Bias consumed other drugs that night, and he was otherwise in exceptional health and not suffering from any heart condition that might have contributed to his passing. Instead, the examiner concluded that the culprit was the cocaine Bias snorted. It was what investigators referred to as, quote, dealer-level quality, so pure and potent that it barely resembled the street-level coke most users consume. Whereas most street cocaine is around 20 to 25% pure, having been cut with various inert substances such as caffeine and acetaminophen, the coke bias snorted was 89% pure, which one drug expert testified is akin to pure poison. But nearly pure cocaine is very hard to get. The head of Maryland's Drug Abuse Administration said, quote, you're not going to stop on the street corner and get that quality. You'd have to be pretty well connected. But according to Bias's family, friends, teammates, school officials, and others, Bias was not at all connected. In fact, almost everyone in Bias's orbit told cops Bias never used drugs at all. Even Bias's best friend and near-constant companion Keith Gatlin said he, quote, never saw him touch drugs before. Never. And so all eyes turned to Brian Tribble the campus dealer who was with Bias the night he died. Prosecutors posited that Tribble wanted to impress the newly minted millionaire, so he pulled strings to get the very best product he could that night, and then tempted the teetotaling Bias into giving it a try. Tribble raged at the accusations, insisting he did not provide the lethal drugs to Bias, and asserting that Bias was, in fact, a habitual user who had plenty of other sources. Prosecutors dismissed Tribble's assertions as self-serving, and in July 1986, obtained grand jury indictments of Tribble for possession of cocaine with intent to distribute, as well as of Long and Gregg for possession and obstruction of justice. The cases against Long and Gregg were later dismissed in exchange for their testimony against Tribble. The case went to trial in May 1987 and initially proceeded as planned as a series of prosecution witnesses, including Long and Gregg, testified Tribble was a dealer with a network of street pushers of his products and identified him as the person who provided the drugs that killed Bias. But the prosecution's case soon began to unravel. First, Long and Gregg acknowledged they'd only agreed to testify against Tribble in exchange for immunity from prosecution for their own wrongdoing. And perhaps more significantly, the judge heard testimony from Long and others that Len Bias was not a curious, first-time user, as everyone thought, but a recreational addict with access to an unknown network of dealers. Long testified that Bias actually introduced him to cocaine three years before his death, and they'd snorted cocaine together seven to ten times, with Bias supplying the drugs each time. Further, when Bias's car was searched following his death, a small brick of cocaine was found stashed under the hood. He was not the innocent victim of Tribble's schemes, as everyone suspected. So with the prosecution's star witness compromised and an otherwise sympathetic victim now tarnished, the jury acquitted Tribble on all charges. For Bias's parents, the trial was a catastrophe. Not only was the person they believed killed their son set free, but they were forced to look at their deceased child in a very different light. They, and for that matter, most of the Maryland community, simply had no idea that Len Bias was anything but the dedicated, basketball-focused student-athlete he appeared to be. His mother, Lenise, a woman of deep faith, stated she now realized, quote, I did not know who Len was. I knew that he played basketball, that he was my son, and he was doing well. I didn't know who he was as a man. And, of course, the blow was closely felt within Bias's Maryland community. The man poised to become a local hero and University of Maryland legend was now little more than a statistic and a cautionary tale. 
Jason, I find this fascinating because my memory, I was quite young when, when the Len Bias episode happened. This was in 1986, so I was just a kid. But my enduring memory of him is how polished he looks in that, in that Celtics hat on yeah. draft day. He had the big smile. This was a superstar in the making. And you could tell he, was, he just had that sort of way he carried himself. There was sort of the confidence, maybe a bit of ego, but just sort of polish, I would say. And the trial proved otherwise. Otherwise, although I'll say the enduring memory of him is as a tragic victim. So this is surprising to learn all of these details. Yeah, it, re- it really is. I, I mean, he, he was he was so grounded and humble. He had two terrific parents who were extremely involved at every step. You know, this is a kid who grows up and he was the best basketball player from the time he was five years old. He's but, built like LeBron James. You yes. look at those stats, you see 6'8", 210. Right. That's kind of LeBron size. Right. And though he had some brashness on the court, like Michael Jordan, off the court, he was incredibly likable, big smile, great kid by all accounts. His coaches talked about what a terrific young man he was. Um, his mother, and we'll talk about this, went on to, you know, she she's taught respect for authority, and he followed in that. He was really a great, great kid. But he had this dark side to him, and we can get into judgments about drug use and all that other stuff. He was just a kid. He made mistakes like a lot of kids do. But he had this dark side to him. There was one instance where he was asked by uh, by somebody, who's your source for the drugs? And he kind of looked at them menacingly, and he goes, we don't ask those kind of questions. Yeah, and I think we'll have to contextualize this more as we go on, because in 1986, the view of drugs in sports was very different. It was in its infancy. I mean, this was the era of Vince Coleman and all those guys on the Mets who were you know, using cocaine recreationally, Doc Gooden, all of those guys. So it wasn't thought of in the same terms, but boy, would that change with Len Bias. Yeah, it really would. Let's take a quick ad break and we'll come back to talk about the devastating legacy Len Bias left behind. If you're shopping while working, eating, or even listening to this podcast, then you know and love the thrill of the hunt. But are you getting the thrill of the best deals? Rakuten shoppers do. They get the brands they love with the most savings and cash back. And you can get it too. Start getting cash back at your favorite stores like Adidas, Macy's, or Levi's. And you can even stack sales on top of cash back. It's easy to use and you get your cash back through PayPal or check. The idea is simple. Stores pay Rakuten for sending them shoppers and Rakuten shares that money with you as cash back. Download the free Rakuten app and never miss a deal or... Go to Rakuten.com to start getting the most bang for your buck. That's Rakuten, R-A-K-U-T-E-N. There are a few athletes in the history of American sports whose legacy is as impactful and enduring as Len Bias, but it has nothing to do with basketball. Initial news accounts of Bias' death reported that he died of crack cocaine, and by the time word got around that was untrue, the crack frenzy had begun. In the mid-1980s, America's war on drugs was the nation's central domestic policy issue, with crack at the forefront. Time named crack the issue of the year, and members of Congress cast crack, falsely as it turned out later, as a more dangerous and addictive drug than powdered cocaine. Democrat House Speaker Tip O'Neill, a Boston native himself, hoped that the raw emotion of the bias tragedy would help him push forward a bill to address the crack epidemic, which he could then use for political gain. Suddenly, government committees of all kinds were drafting legislation, and a few weeks later, O'Neill introduced the most sweeping anti-drug law in American history, formally named the Anti-Drug Abuse Act of 1986, but referred to colloquially as the Len Bias Law. To build public support for the law prior to its passage, President Reagan addressed the nation in prime time from the West Hall of the White House. 
Despite our best efforts, illegal cocaine is coming into our country at alarming levels, and four to five million people regularly use it. Today, there's a new epidemic, smokable cocaine, otherwise known as crack. It is an explosively destructive and often lethal substance which is crushing its users. It is an uncontrolled fire. And Jason, with lightning speed, this bill passed both houses of Congress. There was tremendous support, Len Bias, and that story really galvanized people in a way that the politicians swooped in to address this issue in the manner that I believe in some sense they thought appropriate, but, you know, views can differ as to what they saw in the opportunity of the Len Bias saga to do to the country. But we know how slowly things work in Congress, and for good reason, right? Quickly passed laws are no good. They're not thought through. Len Bias dies in June. The bill is presented to Congress by Tip O'Neill and the Democrats in the House in, in uh, September, and it passes in October. And there's a, an election in November. The midterm elections in 1986 are in November. So all this is compressed, and nobody disputes this is what happened. All this is compressed into this incredibly tight time window. And with the lightning speed, the bill passed both houses of Congress. Incidentally, as an aside, one of the senators who really backed the bill and got it through the Senate was a young and hungry uh, senator by the name of Joe Biden. That's right. He's had to carry that legacy with him. And it reads a bit different now. Yeah. So the speed with which the Len Bias law was passed meant that there were no committee hearings, no analysis of the key provisions, and little research into the bill's implications. And the results really were ruinous. In the 30 years after the passage of the Len Bias law, tens of billions of taxpayer dollars have been spent on anti-drug enforcement, and the number of people incarcerated for drug crimes grew dramatically, most of them street users caught up in the law's mandatory minimum sentence provisions. These provisions created a significant racial disparity. There's been a lot of ink spilled on this, but just to crystallize it, sentences imposed for crimes involving powdered cocaine, disproportionately used by white Americans, versus crack cocaine, disproportionately used by black Americans, have a very different sentencing regime. Under the law, a drug crime involving just five grams of crack, the exact weight of a nickel, carried a mandatory minimum sentence of five years in prison. So if you have a rock of of crack cocaine that's the size of a nickel, the weight of a nickel, you will get five years. To get that same five years in prison, you would need 100 times that amount of powdered cocaine, a full half a kilo of cocaine. You would need to get the same amount of jail time. And the racial disparity of that is monumental. It's clear they were trying to address inner city crack use and not white people at yuppie parties. This is a political game. This is we see the inner cities exploding. We know you white suburban people are afraid of this. Therefore, we're going to pass these laws without much foresight. We want to get it done before the election. We want to tout it to our to our constituents. And we want to show that we're doing something about this epidemic that's not happening in your neighborhoods, but this epidemic that's happening in other people's neighborhoods, and we want you to vote for it. And that's that's really exactly what happened. After the Len Bias Act went into effect, the number of black people sent to federal prison grew fivefold, while there was almost no change in the number of white people incarcerated, despite the fact that usage rates among white and black citizens increased at similar rates. And yet, the saddest part of this whole thing Despite the diversion of tens of billions of dollars from prevention, treatment, and harm reduction efforts in the direction of policing, enforcement, and incarceration, there is zero empirical evidence demonstrating that the law was successful in reducing overall drug use or related crime. And that's really the key, regardless of the intentions. And a lot of people think these were malevolent intentions, even to begin with. They were racially motivated. But even if you take a step back and say Ronald Reagan and Tip O'Neill were trying to address the criminality in the inner cities and they thought this was the best tailored way to address that problem, 
it hasn't it was worked. Ineffective. It, it was ineffective. ineffective. Now, I grew up in that era, and I remember Nancy Reagan in the red dress, the Just Say No program, the different strokes, special episodes about, you know, Arnold uh, saying no to drugs. It was omnipresent. It did have an impact on me. It, it had an impact on me, too. It made me think hard drugs are scary. I'm about 10 years older than you, but you and I both grew up ha- having that drumbeat, right, of drugs are bad, drugs are bad, and, and they cocaine are. cocaine is by, scary. By the way, drugs are bad and cocaine is scary, and, and they can all kill you, and people shouldn't do them the whole thing. I think you and I agree on that, sure. but- the way that it was messaged to us, it became the defining thing. Kid repeat, kids repeated this stuff all the way through elementary school, and they got to middle school and high school, and they did what every other kid does has for generations: did drugs. But the the, the what happens in the out in the in the end run is that for every drug dealer, drug user, drug distributor, drug grower, you know, uh, producer, all the way down the supply, all chain. the way down, who's arrested. There's one or two people willing to step into their shoes. So it was a fiction that by arresting as many people as possible, we would somehow stop the drug trade. That's right. And the mass incarceration of people with huge sentences. I mean, five years uh, for a a, a nickel's worth of of, of crack truly just derails someone's life. And that's what happened. We saw these people serving these sentences and not really being able to get back on their feet and get their life back on track. So it didn't serve the purpose. It's not even, it's not only derails their life, right? The predominantly huge predomination of young black men. They were, those are fathers who were taken out of homes. They were young workers who could take care of aging parents. The, it, it devastated the, those the, communities. Dev- now, devastated them. Now, at the same time, yes, these people were arrested for crack offenses. Presumably, they all committed. I mean, we know there's some innocent people mixed up in this too. But in an effort to get these people off the streets, I guess, we justified it as such. And maybe there's some justification there. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I want to emphasize, though, that, you know, you mentioned that Joe Biden was really behind this bill. He is a dyed-in-the-wool Democrat, always yes. has been, very far to the left. He certainly, I mean— I at least believe that there was well-meaning intent behind people like Joe Biden. I mean, say what you will about the Ronald Reagans and the Tip O'Neills of the world. Joe Biden wanted to solve a problem. Yeah, I, I believe. Yeah, and it was in his in his uh, sort of you know uh, incentivized to to solve a problem right politically for him. And so I think that it went so disastrously. He has certainly moved away from that part of and his he's acknowledged legacy a and acknowledged yeah, the flaws. Right. I, I don't think everyone acknowledges them, but but some people say this clearly. But it was work. political orthodoxy to be behind this bill at the time, not just for political reasons, but there was a huge epidemic and people were dying in the streets and there was an effort to address those things. To your point, it wasn't always you know ill motivation behind it. It was some good people thinking maybe this is the way to address it. But just in hindsight, it was so hopelessly flawed. And frankly, it took... 30 to 40 years for us to really pull out of it. We're getting away from it now. We're still unwinding. But we're still unwinding. Exactly. Len Bias's death was, of course, a devastating blow to his family and to the University of Maryland community. And it crippled the Boston Celtics, who, having won three NBA championships in the six seasons before they drafted Len Bias, proceeded to endure a 22-year title drought by far the longest in their franchise history. And you know, as a Lakers fan, it's the Celtics and the Lakers. So I remember that drought. Yeah. And everyone was saying, wow, they've never recovered from Len Bias. The curse of Len Bias. It is really the called, curse, kind of right? like the curse of the Bambino for right. the Yankees. A few final notes. Brian Tribble returned to dealing cocaine after his acquittal in the Len Bias case. He was again arrested in 1990, and this time accused of being a major player in a Washington, D.C. drug ring, selling an estimated 22 pounds of cocaine every month. He pled guilty and spent 10 years in federal prison. He has apparently turned his life around and is now a personal trainer in Washington, D.C. In 1990, Jay Bias, Len's younger brother, was shot and killed by a man who accused him of flirting with his wife. Just as Len Bias's death focused nationwide attention on drug abuse among collegiate athletes, the shooting death of his younger brother stirred anger over the prevalence of handguns and violence in Washington-area streets. 
Lenise Bias found solace in her faith and ultimately forgave the two men she believes killed her sons. She later founded the Bias Foundation, which seeks to assist other victims of drugs and violence, and has spent the last three decades as a public speaker, emphasizing the importance of good decisions, taking responsibility, and respecting authority. She and Len's father, James, still live in Maryland and have been married for 53 years. It wasn't until 2014 that the University of Maryland elected Bias into the Athletic Hall of Fame, finally dispensing of the last vestige of shame the school felt over the death of their greatest star. Today, a red banner hangs over the Maryland basketball court with white lettering and black numbers that simply read, Bias, 34. The University of Maryland's most famous fan, longtime ESPN personality Scott Van Pelt, who went to school at the same time as Bias but never met him, was once asked what he thought of Bias's legacy, and he said, quote, it's everything. It's what he looked like. It's how he played. It's how he made you feel as a Maryland fan. It's how crushing it was that it ended. What will I remember about Len Bias? I'll remember everything, and I'll remember it as long as I live. No one knows what Len Bias's career would have looked like had he not died that night. There are just too many variables in sports. Would his game have translated to the NBA as well as Michael Jordan's did? Would he have liked playing in Boston, a notoriously difficult city for young, brash, black athletes like Bias? Would he have stayed clean, or was he an addict who would have eventually crashed? Or just maybe, would he have become the greatest there ever was? It's too complex a question to even pose as a counterfactual, but Len Bias was an extraordinary basketball player, and it's a tragedy he never gave himself the chance to see what he might have become. (laughs) 